Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be in the uh, book of Colossians, Colossians chapter number one. And uh, we've been looking at uh, this passage uh, here in Colossians 1, and we're about ready to wrap it all up here. But uh, this morning, uh, the verses we're going to look at, verses uh, 24 through 27, Paul is going to share some very personal uh, things about his own life and um, his ministry that uh, he has. And if you can remember where Paul was uh, when he wrote this letter uh, to this church, he was in prison. He had never met these people. Uh, he heard about them through Epaphras, who we read about in uh, Colossians 1, who was a faithful minister uh, there in the church. And uh, he went and visited Paul and told him everything that had been going on in this church. And uh, so Paul writes this uh, letter to these believers here. And Paul was really writing against this backdrop of some uh, false uh, teaching that was going on in this church. It had really uh, taken hold. Uh, these false teachers were diminishing Christ, his authority, who he was. They were kind of downplaying him. And that's where Paul really goes in through all that, uh, that great passage that we looked at in uh, verses 15 through 20, how he exalts Christ and he lifts Christ up um, as the, uh, the only one. And um, Paul goes through all of these things. He faithfully declares to us uh, not only the gospel, but he also declares to us who Christ really is. And uh, when you get a very clear picture of who Jesus is, it really changes uh, your life. It really does. And uh, so Paul is, spends that time uh, with them uh, to help, help him in all of that. Now, these false teachers that were in this church, they were probably trying to downplay Paul's uh, authority, probably trying to downplay uh, Paul's words. And Paul really kind of does uh, battle with that. And the way that he does that, this passage that we're going to look at, he's going to share some of his own personal life and his ministry with these believers and tell them exactly what's been going on uh, in his own life. And uh, he does that, and he helps us understand that how we too can serve Jesus and minister uh, to others in the body of Christ. When you think about that statement, um, being a minister, ministering to others, what comes to your mind first? Now, if it's uh, somebody who is uh, identified as clergy, you got the wrong idea, okay? Um, the word minister is actually the word servant, and uh, all of us are called to be servants. We are all called to be ministers, and uh, we'll see that as uh, we, we work through this passage here. Um, but the truth is that all of us who know Jesus are ministers, and uh, Paul reminds us that because of the gospel, he was made a minister. He talks about that in Colossians 1.23, and also mentions it here in verse 25. But um, we've all been made a minister because of the gospel, and we are all called to minister uh, to one another. And um, the question is, how do we serve, or how do we minister? Do you remember getting a report card? 
I remember uh, when I was in high school, I, I, for the first couple years there, I did not apply myself very well. Um, I did not turn in assignments. Uh, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I remember it was actually an English class, John. Um, I, you know, we were going through, I think it was the book of uh, Romeo and Juliet. I didn't really, really want to read it. I thought it was a waste of time. And then came the report card time, right? And this was ninth grade, I remember. I wasn't applying myself. And the English teacher, he was so merciful, he didn't fail me. He could have failed me. And he didn't pass me by giving me a D. Instead, he gave me an E. I didn't even know that existed on a report card, but evidently it does. And um, I remember that in order for me to pass those classes, I had to apply myself and I had to do well. And if we are going to minister to one another, if we are going to minister on behalf of Jesus, we have to know how to serve Jesus and how to serve him well. And one of the ways that we see through all of this is the way that Paul himself exalted Jesus Christ. And I think that would be the big picture here that we need to ask, you know, do we, do we exalt Jesus? Do we exalt Jesus in our life? Do we exalt Jesus in how we minister towards one another? And so this is what I would like uh, for you to take away with you uh, this morning. As a minister, I need to know how to serve. As a minister, I need to know how to serve. How can I be a good minister or servant of Jesus Christ. That, that should be on our mind often. God has gifted every single one of us in here with spiritual gifts. There are no spiritual bench warmers uh, in, uh, in the church, and we're all called to minister to one another, and we need to learn how to minister to one another so that way we can minister to the body of Christ and minister very well. So let's take notice here of our passage here, what Paul says here. Number one, serve Jesus by suffering joyfully for Christ and the church. Take notice what Paul says here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now this is something that we believers in Jesus have a hard time with, and it's suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. And by the way, I, I would have to say that um, some of the suffering that we think is suffering is really not suffering. It's just you being inconvenienced. Real, true, legitimate suffering. There are believers on other parts of the world that are going through real, real suffering. Um, we may not even experience that. Now, please don't think that I'm trying to downplay hardships and trials that, that come into our lives. But Paul here, what he's talking about suffering, remember where he was. He wasn't in the Hilton Hotel. He was in prison. When Paul would go into a town to uh, proclaim the gospel, he wasn't checking out, uh, you know, what the, what the greatest attractions were in town. He was checking out the prisons because that's probably more likely where he was going to be. Okay? So Paul here, he's talking about suffering, and he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And then he says something rather strange here. Notice the text. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What does he mean by this? That he's filling up what is lacking in 
Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. It somewhat appears that either Paul is saying that he needs to add to Christ's sufferings in order to pay for his sins, or that Christ's sacrifice was not enough. This is a really somewhat of a difficult verse uh, for two reasons. Uh, One, it's difficult to explain and it's difficult to apply. And let me give you some helpful advice when reading through God's Word. When you come to a difficult verse that seems a little out of place or it seems like it's teaching something that maybe you don't really go along with, okay, Um, you always need to interpret that verse with what you know is clear. God is never going to say two opposite things. He's never going to say it's this way and then it's this way, okay? It's always just one way. And so what you know what to be true and what is clear, other scriptures, then you need to interpret that verse in line with that verse, okay? And that'll help you. Um, So here's Paul. He's talking about this, and he's talking about the fact of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if we are going to serve Jesus, we need to serve him through our suffering joyfully for Christ and his church. And the key here is what Paul says about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, we know that it's very clear both in Paul's writings and in the entire New Testament that Christ's suffering on the cross was complete and sufficient for salvation for all who trust in him. And if you don't know Jesus, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, uh, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is enough to pay for all of your sins. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. There's nothing that you can do to make it better. Christ accepts you just as you are a sinner. And his sacrifice was enough to pay for your sins. And so we know that that's not what Paul is meaning here, that he's, that he's not trying to, uh, in other words, try to add to Christ's um, payment uh, for the sins. And so how do we answer what this verse may be appearing as teaching? We must look for the clear. What do we know what is true? Well, Jesus himself proclaimed just before he died in John 19.30, it is finished. The atonement that he procured for sinners was complete. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Paul makes it clear that in Christ we have an inheritance, that we have uh, been rescued from Satan's domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of light. Uh, We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Colossians 2, 10, Paul says, in him you have been made complete. He goes on to show that the death and the resurrection of Christ resulted in all of our sins being forgiven and in Christ's complete victory over the powers of darkness. There's many other verses that we could look at uh, in Paul's writings in the book of Hebrews could be piled up to show us that there's nothing that we could add to Christ's death that would make it available in saying, hey, I'm adding to Christ's death here. Because Christ's death alone is sufficient. So this verse does not mean that somehow Christ's suffering on the cross was insufficient and for our salvation so that Paul or anyone else needed to complete it. Paul isn't talking here about salvation, but rather what? Service, ministry, being a servant. So how do we know that? Well, take a look at the word afflictions there. It's a real important word. 
That word uh, afflictions that's translated here as afflictions is not used anywhere in the New Testament referring to Christ's sacrificial sufferings for our salvation. So Paul does not mean, and the New Testament never teaches, that in some way we are, by our suffering, adding merit to Christ's sacrificial death that paid for our sins. So what does Paul mean by this statement? Well, let me offer you two suggestions. First of all, Jesus taught that his followers must suffer because of their identification with him. He told the disciples in John 15, 20 uh, through 21, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not higher or greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to do what? They're going to persecute you. You should never be astonished that the world will never give you honor because the world did not give Christ honor. And so we as believers have to remember that if we're going to be identified with Jesus, that means that there will be times of suffering. Jesus continues on and he says, If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus prophesied that before he returned, there would be a time of unprecedented suffering for his followers. We find that in Matthew 24, 9, uh, verses 21 through 22. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the apostle John sees the martyrs in heaven who were crying out, asking God how long it would be until their blood was avenged. The Lord told them in Revelation 6.11 to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So there's a sense in which Christ's sufferings must be filled up, Right? or completed by his body, the church, before he returns. Because the church is his body, when any member suffers for his name, Jesus also suffers. It's quite interesting to think about that. I remember a previous church ministry that I was at. Um, God had been working in my life, changing my understanding of what it meant uh, to be a follower of Jesus. And I had the, uh, the prejudice in my heart that thinking that anybody that was not like me or if they did not get saved in a church like I go to was probably not a Christian. And uh, God really changed my heart in understanding all of that. And I remember I was out, uh, we uh, were youth directors there and an assistant pastor, and um, we took the teens out, what we did uh, door-to-door evangelism. You know, we'd come by, knock on your door, and ask you if you'd die today, if you'd go to heaven. And uh, I remember there was a young man that was with me, and God had already been working my heart, changing my heart and all that. And we knocked on this lady's door, and she answered the door, and we began talking with her and asked her, hey, do you attend church anywhere? And she said she attended a church. It was a non-denominational church just uh, right down the road there. And uh, after we talked with her a little bit, uh, we went on our way. And that young man that was with me, he said, I hate that church. Whoa. Do you realize what you're saying? If that person is a follower of Jesus, you're saying you hate 
Christ. You hate the body of Christ. That's so sad. That's why it's so important for us to remember that all of us, Christ has saved us and he's brought us together as the body of Christ. And we are all on equal standing ground here. None of us is better than any other. And if we know Jesus as our Savior, then we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are fellow heirs of the grace of life. I mean, we are, we are all sharing the same inheritance. And so we need to be very careful sometimes that we need to remember that if we are persecuting other believers, then we are persecuting Jesus himself. And it's very important to remember that. Secondly, Christ's sufferings do not need completion in terms of trying to appease God by us suffering. Meaning that when we suffer, we don't suffer in a way that appeases God in hopes of earning eternal life. But our suffering is used in a way to make sure that Christ's name is exalted and his salvation is known. Christ's death provided perfect atonement for all who believe. But people can't believe unless Christ's followers go everywhere proclaiming the good news. As Paul put it in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The thing lacking in Christ's affliction is not the full salvation he secured on the cross, but the price that his followers must pay in the struggle against the powers of darkness to take salvation of Christ offers to every person. You see, why were you and I left here after Christ has saved us? Why are we here? We're here to serve the Master. We're here to exalt Christ. We're here to take the good news to every person. And in that, we experience what? We experience suffering. And so God is doing a work in all of us. And so if we're going to serve Jesus, then we need to serve Jesus by suffering joyfully for Christ and the church. And you know, if that's Paul's meaning in that, it's still difficult to, to apply to us American Christians because very few of us know what it means to suffer for the gospel of Christ. I mean, think about it. I mean, did anybody in here, were you coerced this morning saying that you're not going to go there to a house of worship? Did anybody come to your house and take away your Bible? No. Did anybody find out if you were been memorizing Scripture that they were going to take you in a room and beat you? No. You see, we don't know how to apply this because we don't experience that yet. But we need to know that there are believers all around the world that know what it means to suffer for Jesus and they do it joyfully. So we need to learn how we can apply this. How can we apply this here and now? First, note that Paul is not only talking about suffering for Christ here, but suffering joyfully. He was in prison when he was writing this. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul rejoiced that his sufferings for Christ would help the new Colossian church. Have you ever thought about that your suffering could actually help another believer in Christ? 
You see, we are so selfish. We think that our suffering that we're going through is all about us. It's not. It's for others. It's for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church. See, that's the difference how we can look at it. And that's how we can endure suffering. Paul rejoiced that his sufferings for Christ would help this church to stand firm when they suffered because they saw a picture of a man that was suffering for Christ. And they said, boy, if he can do it, I can do it. Our Lord also told us in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, our Lord tells us that we need to endure suffering and to rejoice when we are suffering. And so his words here give us a hint for how we can apply this sort of being imprisoned or beaten or dying for our faith. He tells us that we should suffer and rejoice in the sufferings. You know, if it comes to that, if it comes to being imprisoned or beaten or dying for our faith, I trust that the Holy Spirit will give us the power to rejoice. But in the meantime, we should rejoice when people insult us. They falsely say all kinds of things that are wrong against us. All kinds of evil speak evil against us. Because perhaps you might be serving the Lord in some capacity, even here. Maybe you're uh, teaching, uh, maybe Sunday school. Maybe you're uh, on the worship team. Maybe you're uh, doing something in the background and somebody says something, okay? That is a great opportunity not to sulk and say, oh, right? It's a great opportunity for us to rejoice and learn how to apply those things to our life. See, trials are meant to weaken our dependence on ourselves and increase our dependence on God. They also serve to strengthen our faith and preserve the church from false teachers and from false professors. 1 Peter 1 tells us that we are to rejoice in our various kinds of trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when a trial comes, you should look at the situation and thank God. God, thank you for bringing this into my life so that way I may better show Christ to others in my life. Trials are hard, don't get me wrong. It's hard when people say things that are nasty about you, isn't it? It's hard when people gossip about you and slander you. It's hard, I get it. But how are we supposed to react the same way Jesus did? When Christ was reviled, how did he act? He didn't revile back, right? We're supposed to be living differently. Sad to say, but there are many believers that have quit serving the Lord because they were criticized or wounded what should you do? Well, you may need to talk to that person and get things straightened out. Um, but you need to rejoice. Count it a privilege that you have been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' sake. Sufferings are not an elective class in the Christian life. They're a requirement. Jesus says, if you want to be identified with me, you will 
suffer persecution. And we need to remember that. So, we need to be filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions here. And if we're going to serve Jesus, we need to serve him joyfully by uh, suffering joyfully for Christ and the church. Here's the second thing. Serve Jesus in the power of his spirit as stewards chosen by him. Look what Paul says here, verse 25, of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Not only serve Jesus by suffering for Christ in the church, but serve Jesus in the power of his spirit as a steward chosen by him. I really like what the way the verse reads in the NASB. He says this, Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. And so Paul says, I've been made a minister twice, he said that, verse 23 and verse 25 here. How did Paul become a minister? How did that happen? Did Paul take a spiritual aptitude test? Did he say, hey, uh, give me the spiritual gift test. I want to find out if I'm a minister. No. Nope. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 says that, uh, that God had set him apart from his mother's womb. In Acts 9, we read how it happened. Remember, at, uh, there in Acts, uh, Paul uh, is uh, there on the road to Damascus. He's blinded by a great light from heaven. He falls down to the, to, the, to the floor there. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, get up. And I'm going to show you what you're going to do and how much you will suffer, Paul, for my great name. And so that's exactly what Paul does. He goes into uh, uh, there uh, to find Ananias, and uh, Ananias uh, is so concerned that uh, Paul is a terrorist and uh, the Lord reassures him, no, no, I, I have chosen him. He's going to do this. And uh, we know exactly what, uh, what happens. We read in Acts 9, 15 through 16, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so that's how Paul became a minister of the gospel. He wasn't a volunteer for Jesus. It wasn't Paul's chosen career path. Rather, the crucified, risen, resurrected Lord said to him, I want you, right? Remember the old army posters? I want you, right? And uh, we can say the exact same thing. Since we, since we have and know Jesus as our Savior, we have been drafted into service for our Lord. I want you, and you, and you. Everybody has a place in the Lord's body as we serve him and so he's called us he's called us to serve him with whatever spiritual gifts time resources that he has entrusted to you look what paul says here he says that i am a steward the stewardship that was given to me what has god given you and entrusted you with remember the parable of the talents that our lord gave one man he gives 10 talents one man he gives five talents the other man he gives one talent right one with ten talents goes and invests it. Other guy, same with the five. But the one with the one, right, what does he do? He hides his talent. He says, oh, Lord, I know that you're a hard man. You drive a hard bargain here. 
What's the Lord tell him? He says, you wicked and slothful servant. He says, take it away from him. Give it to the other person. And so God has entrusted us with many, many things. Not all of us can stand up here and preach the word, right? That's why it's called a body. Body has several different kinds of uh, uh, parts to it, right? We got pinkies and we got fingers and we got toes and we got tongues and we got gallbladders and, right? We got it all, right? And by the way, we don't cut off any of the parts of the body either, okay? Well, we don't need you anymore, okay? It's all useful. So how are you using what God has been entrusted you with? How are you serving? We are to serve in the power of His Spirit. Notice Paul's statement here. I love this. He says that he might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Literally, make full the Word of God. Romans 15, 18-19, Paul refers to what Christ had accomplished through him in the power of the Spirit. And then he adds this, so that from Jerusalem... And round about as far as Iconium, I have fully preached or fulfilled the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy 4.17, he tells how the Lord strengthened him so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. So the idea is, however God has gifted you, you will only fulfill your calling of what God has called you to do as you minister and that will be fulfilled as you yield your life to Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something. When you yield your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, God will make a spiritual difference. Oh yeah, we can do all kinds of things. I mean, we can, we can uh, uh, play it all up all we want to, right? But if it's not done in the power of the Spirit, what does it accomplish? Nothing. We're just spinning our wheels. We're not really doing much. And so it's important that we do it in the power of His Spirit as stewards chosen by Him. You see, your ministry is not about fulfilling you, but exalting the Lord. And we exalt Jesus in our trials by enduring them joyfully for His and His church's sake. We serve Jesus in our service by doing it in the power of His Spirit and His stewards because He appointed us. Now here's the last thing. Thirdly, serve Jesus by proclaiming Christ in you, the hope of glory. We serve Jesus by proclaiming Christ in us. Notice what Paul says here about this ministry that we have, verse 26 and 27. He says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice what Paul says here about this message. He says it is the mystery. The mystery. What does he mean by that? He could have been saying this really as a play on words because of these false teachers that were promoting this idea. Oh, come over here to our secret hideout. We're going to say some enchanted, mysterious things, and then you'll gain the full knowledge of God. Right? No. He says... The gospel, it is a mystery because it wasn't previously known. And that's exactly what God's word does all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's this unfolding drama of redemption. 
God reveals himself and he shows that, hey, I have provided a way of salvation all throughout Scripture. It's, there's this common thread that you see. And then when we get to Revelation, there's this revealing of Christ who's going to come back and he's going to return and he's going to judge the world in righteousness and in holiness. And we're going to ever so be with the Lord. And so Paul says that the gospel message, especially that the Gentiles could be full partners along with the Jews, is a mystery for all the ages and generations. And it wasn't just for a select few. You see, this was the prejudice that many of the Jews held in their hearts against the Gentiles. You say, who's a Gentile? Well, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That simple, okay? So Gentiles, uh, they weren't part of this uh, choosing of God, right? God chose his, his nation, the Jewish people. And so the Gentiles were treated like trash. Oh, we're so special. We are God's chosen ones. Ugh, what is that? A Gentile? Ugh. Okay? That's how they treated these people. And he says, this has been a mystery that God has opened the way of salvation for not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so God revealed this truth that Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews, one body in Christ with them. Notice towards the end of verse 27, Paul uses this phrase, Christ in you. Who is he talking to? In this context, he means Christ in you Gentiles. And so for Paul, this was a glorious truth, but I fear that we don't really appreciate it as much as we would if we lived back in those days. Did you know if you were a Gentile back in those days? Um, being a Gentile, you were treated as a second-class citizen in the kingdom. Gentiles could become proselytes to Judaism, but they could only enter into the courts of women and the Gentiles into the temple. They had to have a, a different entrance. They were kind of segregated. They could not go into the inner court where the Jewish men went. There was a waist-high wall of partition which separated them. Before his conversion, Paul was a, really a strict adherent of teaching this kind of stuff. Um, but once he was saved, God revealed to him that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs of the gospel. And so if you were a Gentile living back in those days, you were treated like trash. And so for Paul to now say, hey, listen, you are on equal standing ground. That was, that was revolutionary to say something like that. In Ephesians 2.14, he writes that the wall of partition has been removed in Christ. In Colossians 3.11, he says, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is in every believer, and every believer is in Christ. And so the church should be the place where those cultural walls are broken down. And I, and I would say to you that if you have prejudice in your heart against somebody else because they don't look like you, talk like you, act like you, right? If they know Christ, there is no place for that. No place whatsoever to act that way. Because there's only, what, one race, right? The human race. And all have sinned and become short of the glory of God. That's really the problem with a lot of this uh, critical race theory that many churches have accepted and adopted um, because they don't really understand the fact that 
Christ is the one who sets us free. It's not a, a matter of trying to pay for our sins. Okay? Christ is the one that sets us free uh, from, from sin. And so it's important to remember that there's no distinction in Christ whatsoever. If you know Christ, we're all the same. And those that don't know Christ, they need to know Christ, right? Be brought into the family of God. And so we exalt Christ uh, through all of this. And so Paul says here that, that the riches of the glory of the gospel is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so I know that you all know that if you've believed in Jesus, um, he dwells in you and you're going to heaven, right? I mean, that's, that's something we should know. It's like Christianity 101. If we believed in Jesus, Jesus lives in me, and I'm on my way to heaven. But can I ask you a little bit more pointed question other than that? Do you really know it? Do we really believe that? I mean, you've been saved, you've been regenerated, you've been washed, you've been justified, you're on your way to heaven, Christ dwells in you, but do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? Does this church really believe that? Because if we really did believe that, how would the living Christ in us affect how we lived this past week? Would we have done things differently? Would we have not been as impatient or frustrated or angry, grumbling, depressed, if we had stopped to consider that it is Christ in us that lives in us? Would we have lived differently? You see, it's, it's one thing to just say it and, and to do all the actions and all that kind of stuff, but it's another thing to live the transformed life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have to live that out, really. And if we're going to have a good report card, we're going to have to serve Jesus well by actually living that out and know that, hey, this isn't just something that I have because it's part of a tradition or it's part of something that I do on a Sunday. I live this out every single day. Now, let me frame this and wrap it all together here, okay, these verses. So here you are as a believer in Christ. You're suffering. You're going through a hard, difficult time. What does God's Word say you're supposed to do? You're supposed to rejoice, and you're supposed to do it joyfully. And what is the Lord doing in all of this, okay? He's allowing you to go through that suffering so that way you may help the body of Christ so that what? So in turn, you may faithfully proclaim God's word so that in what? In return, you may reveal Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, all of this is connected to be a servant of Jesus Christ. But what do we do so many times when we go through suffering? We withdraw ourselves from everybody else and we just want to be in our own little, little thing, right? Or we get hurt, we get wounded, we just withdraw. We don't want to be around anybody or talk to anybody. And what is, what is happening? Christ is not being exalted or magnified in our lives. And see, God has gifted the church with suffering so that a way we may edify one another. And we may build one another up and we may be able to minister and serve one another. So how are you serving Jesus? How is that going in your life? If you were to look in your past week, how have you served Jesus this past week? Let's pray together.
If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.